Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond. And today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder fam. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Nick Mowbray, co-founder of toy and consumer products manufacturer, Zuru. Today, we're going to go deep on his incredible journey and just how he managed to turn $20,000 into a multi-billion dollar company, the challenges they face, the lessons he's learned along the way. This is an impressive guy, an incredible interview. You do not want to miss this. Please welcome to the podcast, Nick Mowbray. The first question that we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Yeah, it's a great question. So we stumbled into it as the easiest answer. My brother won the New Zealand Science Fair when he was 12 years old. He developed a model hot air balloon. I think my dad was like chief engineer. And uh, he went on to win the New Zealand Science Fair. And then as kids, um, I was a little bit younger, three three or four years younger than my brother. He would, um, I was the labor and we would make these model hot air balloon kit sets and sell them at the um, at festivals, the hot air balloon festival. And then we sort of developed all this makeshift, I guess, production equipment at home. We had 
wire winding in the lounge. We were cutting canopies in the garage and we'd make these kit sets and yeah, sell them door to door, start selling to businesses, start going to festivals when we were kids. I'd round up all my friends um, to be a bit of a sales force and we'd, we'd go knocking on doors through towns throughout New Zealand. And uh, yeah, that's basically how we, we started out. Yeah, crazy. And I want to go back to the very beginning. Like you started uh, Zuru with $20,000, which, you know, you borrowed from your parents, right? Uh, 18, uh, 18 years ago, right? Yeah. So take us back. Yeah. I mean, we, so I, we were sort of doing this on and off through, you know, school holidays when we were kids. And then Matt went to unit, my brother's Matt, he went to university uh, to study engineering. He dropped out, I think after six months, didn't tell my parents, but kept kind of working, coming back to making this hot air balloon. Um, and so he sort of started to, to make it a little bit more professionally. He set up a little uh, production sort of facility on my parents' farm, dairy farm in a place called Tokoroa. We had this sort of old arm shed and then had a concrete floor. So it was a clay floor and we put this fiberglass mat from the, the local paper mill down on the ground. And that was sort of the production facility. And I was a little bit younger and then, and then Matt sort of moved from there up to a place um, in Hamilton at a slightly better factory. And then I went to university for a year, studied law and commerce, didn't actually make it into second year. And Matt was sort of struggling to make this hot air balloon in New Zealand. And he said to me, why don't we, why don't you, you know, come to China? We'll go to China and we'll see if we can uh, manufacture the, the hot air balloons. And, and sort of through my school holidays, I was always working on, on it as well to keep selling these balloons. And in my, in my summer holidays in that first year of university. And because I had a made second year, I was like, didn't really have too many options. And I was like, sure, let's do it. So yeah, off we went to, to China. Um, we'd sort of scraped together all the money we'd ever made. Um, Matt had, you know, a little bit of money from, you know, selling some hot air balloons already. And um, we kind of asked mom and dad for a little bit of money, the bank and mom and dad, and they were always pretty supportive of us. So a small loan, I guess. And we went to China and the, the, I remember the first night we landed actually in, in Hong Kong and we were going to get a hotel, but we realized how expensive it was in Hong Kong. And so we went back into the airport and thought we'd just sleep in the airport the night, but the fluoro lights were so bright that we can't sleep in here. We don't make any sleep. So we went into the bushes outside Hong Kong airport and then we got attacked by mosquitoes all night, but we slept in the bushes. And then we went up into a little place called Shantou, middle of nowhere in China, probably about three hours from Shenzhen, which most people will be familiar with. And um, that's where we first set up and we got this little tiny apartment. It was on the eighth floor, no lift. It was probably 30 bucks a month to rent. Um, I remember every time we needed to get water, it was like this eight floor journey to go and get some water and come back up. And, and that's kind of where we got our start. And from, from, from there, we, we realized that Shanto wasn't the right place. Um, we moved to Shenzhen. Then we moved to a place called um, Huadu, um, a little little town outside of Huadu called Function Dao Dao. So imagine just us. Um, and we had we we set up this little tiny factory. It was basically like a tin shed beside a river and functioned Dao And my cousin Simon um, had come over as well. He'd sort of been working with us a lot um, early on. And Simon welded our first production line. Um, literally, we, we couldn't even really afford much. We were really making every dollar stretch far. And um, from there, we started sort of making our hot air balloons. We had a couple of um, Chinese staff on board at that stage. We had a, a, a um, you have to sort of cook for your Chinese staff as well. So we had this little old Chinese lady who would cook in a big sort of pan, sitting right beside the toilet on the ground on the concrete floor next door to the factory. And she'd cook like rice and a vegetable every day. And we'd sort of eat the same food as, as everyone else. It was, you know, I think we were budgeting like one RMB or two RMB per meal. So, you know, 30, 40, 50 cents per meal. And, and that's kind of what we lived on. 
Um, yeah, and I think the way to maybe maybe the best way was you know those first two or three years, we were so frugal that we wouldn't even go to say McDonald's and the equivalent of a Big Mac combo in China was probably three dollars Australian or you know two dollars fifty US. Even that was a treat. So I remember the first two years celebrating Christmas at McDonald's with my brother. Um, and we always had this little trick because we were so frugal. We'd like eat half our fries and then go back to the the, 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 the counter and complain that they'd only give us half fries so that would reserve us more. So we really were like to the extreme in terms of like not spending any money. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. And what was the big idea? Like what space did you think you guys could fill the market when you moved there and and why did you know, like, how did it work? What, why e-commerce? Why toys? Like, talk to us about that. We were super naive, I think, is the only way to explain it. We didn't really have a big idea or really any business plan or we hadn't really thought through the space we could fill in the market. We were just going over there to try and make our hot air balloon. And we didn't even know there was such a thing as outsourcing or contract manufacturing. That's how naive we were. So we literally physically, like, set up our own little factory over in China um and and just scrapped away and then i guess we got better and, and better and better at what we did and we started to learn more and more and we sort of, sort of started to, to, to shape what we wanted to do you know but it took us you know a fair few years and now i would say it's very much like a hockey stick um those first few years were very slow going and now it's very very fast um, um uh, sort of fast going but we really you know scrapped it out from very 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 small beginnings yeah see and so, so the hot air balloon, whatever happened there and what happened next? Yeah, so the hot air balloon, well, we didn't know. I mean, these just, this is lesson up to lesson. We didn't know that the hot air balloon couldn't meet any of the toy safety standards globally. So we couldn't really sell it to any mass um, retailers. We could only sell it to sort of specialists. And so we were sort of selling this hot air balloon. We had a few customers. And then we were make some other products and this was a whole adventure in, its, in itself and we didn't really we were so naive again just to illustrate it we didn't really know what ip was or patents were and we would seen sort of this night frisbee and it was this frisbee with fiber optic and leds and you can play this frisbee at night and then i saw this sort of money bank it was called a money gobbler and it was in the shape of an animal and you could put the coins in the mouth and they'd wind their way down to the stomach of this money bank and so we made these two products that we'd kind of seen and we just started making them in our factory and I went to New York Toy Fair. It was a big expense at the time. Even to get the tickets, I stayed in a hostel, a big Apple hostel in New York. And I'd sold them to a distributor called Schilling. And we had them on Schilling's booth. And I was on the booth sort of on the first morning starting to sell like, you know, our money gobbler and our night frisbee. But within about the first hour, this guy comes screaming onto the booth. Of course, we've breached all his patents. He has a whole company called Night Eyes that's specialized in making these for, you know, a decade. And, and we had no idea. So Dave says to me, no, you've got to take the, the Frisbee off the, you know, off the stand. So I take it off the stand. I'm like, oh, there's money I can sell. Well, if I, thought the, the Dave, if I thought the first guy was crazy, then this lady comes screaming onto a booth and she'd be making these money banks, um, the same as what we basically copied for years and years and years and years. And she went even more crazy. So I had to take that off the booth. So within the first day of our first toy show, I had no products to sell. And I went back to went back to China, sort of tail between my legs, and I said to my brother, "Man, so you heard of this whole IP like patent thing? I think we have to really start like innovating our own products." And you know, we had all of these lessons. So to explain just how naive we were, we were extremely, extremely naive. Yeah. And then what happened next? Like, when did things like how quickly did Zuru grow? Like, like we, let's talk about more of the challenges, but when did things really start to feel like you're working and how long did that take? How many years? Oh, 
it was slow. And then what we started to do is we we're still sort of learning how to make our own products and, you know, what would work and what wouldn't. And that was taking us a while. So I, I was sort of learning how to hustle and get big retailers on board. I would effectively ring all the big retailers and email them and hassle them every single day. And I was sort of starting to get some, you know, bigger distribution channels. We had a couple of products, but what I was sort of doing was I was going to the US and there were a lot of companies, toy companies there that were making products just for the US market, but weren't taking them internationally. So I was negotiating multiple deals for much better toys than we were making at the time and then taking them internationally. So we had a product called ZBs, which went really well. And we had a product called Schnooks, which was an idea out of Australia. And that started to go really well. And it was really allowing us to sort of develop all these distribution channels more internationally. Um, and at the same time, we were starting to develop more of our own products. We developed you know, a brand called Night Sports and we started to get distribution into the US. It wasn't a great product line. Um, but we were sort of paralleling it um, and, and opening up distribution that way. And then I, I guess Schnooks became a relatively big hit with girls. Um, and then after that, we had our first sort of major hit, probably, well, no, we had, um, we did a deal with David Beckham to make a, a Tamaguchi product, which went into Walmart, which, which is when we made sort of our first, maybe big money. It was a disaster at retail, but we still made quite a bit of money. And then I guess our first major hit was, was RoboFish. And that took us to a, like a hundred million dollars in revenue. And that was probably five or six years in. Um, and, and from there, we just got better and better and better and have just um, the momentum keeps growing. I think as, as of June last, as of June MPD data out of the US, we're sitting now just below Hasbro, Mattel, uh, Lego, Pokemon, then Zuru. So, um, you know, it's been a pretty quick sort of hockey stick growth and that growth has really compounded um, quickly. Yeah, wow. And what's your background around entrepreneurship and how confident were you that when you moved to, to China, this was the right move for, for both you and your brother? I would say there was no confidence. There was maybe more uh, a competitive nature and a drive within us to build something worthwhile, mainly because we didn't want to fail. And so I always say the hungry lion runs faster and we were really, really, really hungry. We had really no choice to succeed. So every day we basically just scrapped and fought and kept getting knocked down and kept getting up and scrapped and fought because we were so, I don't know, competitive that we really wanted to work out how to win. And I always say, one of my favorite sayings is you either win or you learn. And I would say that we did an awful lot of learning in those first four, five, six, seven years. Um, but we always took those insights, you know, and we always consistently worked out how we could be better um, every day, how we could improve. And um, so it took you about five years to like, you know, hit, hit the big product, uh, $100 million. Like what, what were other challenges leading up to that that you could share with our listeners and, and, and viewers to, to really help them if they have an e-commerce product or they're trying to get into retail or create their own products? I think you've got to have the right mentality. So the hardest part is just starting, but the next most important part is making sure you don't flatline. And so part of our DNA is we have this mentality around 2% improvement a week and improvement compounds and quickly you become really good at something. So if you know when you go into something and you're gonna continuously, relentlessly work out how to improve. So we have this saying that we suck now compared to where we are in the future. So I wanna be able to look back on one year from now and say, we weren't even good today. So it's this constant mindset around continuous improvement because improvement compounds. So if you set standards or higher standards, even for the little things, you get these marginal gains and those marginal gains can uh, compound. 
So our, our mindset is always, always, always be trying to get those insights and trying to relentlessly improve day. If you do that, you actually, the, the journey is like the hockey stick. You improve so quickly that you, you'd be surprised and suddenly you become best in the world or something. Um, and it's almost surprising how quickly you can you can do that. So the, the the power of compounding. And where did that come from, that mindset? Did you have it when you guys first started or where did that come from? When did it start? When did that culture? I think it's like a burning desire within you. It's, I always say probably the number one trait within an entrepreneur is competitiveness. If you have that drive and you really, really, really want to win, then you're going to find a way to win. And and in order to win, you have to keep improving. You can't flatline. It's like a sports team. It's like anything, right? Like to be really great, you have to continuously, continuously um, improve. And so we just look at every little detail and say, how can we be better? How can we be better? Be better? How can we be better? And today, even as a you know a big business doing you know billions in revenue, um, how do we how, how do we set that standard within a wide, within our wider company? And so we have a thing called Brains Trust um, within our business. And what Brains Trust does is it's basically a mechanic. And it was actually a John Lassinger, Steve Jobs mechanic, but it allows you never to flatline. And so basically a group of experts in any one area every four weeks on a regular cadence, actually judge and critique and challenge the work in every area in our business. And so what that means is that every four weeks, we're challenging the work and trying to make it improve. So when you come back four weeks later, it has to have improved. And all those challenges have to have been met. And so oftentimes it's a debate and there's like healthy debate and tension, but it means that we can never flatline. And I would say as a percentage, most companies, most people um, flatline. And so flatlining is the enemy for us. We always want to continually get better. Mm. And has there been a time where you guys ever had flat, have flatlined in this journey, you know, 15, 16, 18 years ago? No, we've never flatlined. I can honestly say every year we get substantially better. And not just a little bit, we improve um, significantly. It's the reason, I guess, in a short time we can grow to, 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 to the size we have, especially given, you know, we've never had any outside equity or loans or sort of banks or, 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 you know, really borrowed money outside of that first loan from our parents. And, you know, part of that mentality is, is, is that relentless uh, focus on improvement. Mm. Yeah, that's impressive. And I'd love to dive a little deeper on this mindset and culture that is instilled across Zuru because it sounds like it's something that is unique that has really helped you guys accelerate the growth of the business. Where, where has this come from? I know you said that as entrepreneurs, we love to compete, but have you guys, you and your brother always have this insane drive? Were you born with it? Is it something that was cultivated? Was there something that perhaps happened where you guys just snapped or an, an experience that you had that the change to this level of relentlessness? I, I, I think we just grew up in a very competitive environment. I would say our parents made us competitive, but we've always just been competitive. I mean, we compete with each other. We competed. We, we just always been competitive. And I think you just kind of born with that, like that competitive fire. And, and I, I, yeah, I think it's hard to manufacture that, that to be honest. Um, and I just think it's the most important trait in, in, in an entrepreneur. And when you look back, like, what do you think you guys got really, really right? What, what do you, you know, what do you think you guys were getting so right? Because this growth is exceptional. 
Yeah, I think I, I, I think what we got really right is we were sort of disruptive in a in a in a in a sense, right? Because we went to China really early. It was when China was just you know good at manufacturing, and we built effectively the whole organization, a lot of the organization now out of out of Asia, out of Hong Kong and Shenzhen, and we were getting China when it was sort of moving from just being a manufacturing economy to also being really great at building stuff. And there's a lot of smart people in China that work really, really, really hard and. You know, a lot of our automation team, engineering team, design team, merchandising team are all kind of based there. And that's been a huge advantage for us in being disruptive all the way through to how we sort of build and design automation. A lot of our competitors outsource their production and still produce or hand produced on production lines. For example, our Xshot brand, we produce 42 million dart blasters a year, 15 million water blasters. And we make them from a plastic granule to a finished product in packaging without any people that's really disruptive versus our competitors and we've only been able to do that because of what we've set up over in in asia and so i think we got that really right i also think we really 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 understand how to pick trends and get on them fast if you look at our track record you know whether it was a bunch of balloons and i'm one summer toy in the world whether you look at its mini brands which is currently the number one selling toy in america or sorry last year it finished number two and number three it just got picked by hot wheels um, at the end of the year, which has been perennial and number one for you know volume and dollars. But again, like getting insights and trends, if you look at a brand like Rainbow Corns, how we got on a giant mystery surprise egg trend really early, how we won that. We were first to pick the fidget trend. So we signed Fidget Cube off Kickstarter, which kicked off the biggest trend maybe in toy history. And so I think we've been really good at, at, at picking trends and, and what's coming and, and being on those super early and, and picking great concepts and great ideas. And sort of being really relentless around constantly trying to gain insights and and action those insights. And so we have an approach around sort of fast fail and fire bullets before you fire cannonballs. So it's really really having a strong thesis and having a strong insight for something and then firing a bullet around it. And if it works, firing a cannonball. And I think that's really been our approach um, in our toy business and very much in our consumer business as well. Mm, Yeah, that's a Jim Collins from uh, Great by Choice. Good to great, exactly. Yeah, good to great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. The best, I think it's the best business book um, to this day by some distance. Mm. Interesting. So let's talk about trends and insights because that's something that, you know, a lot of founders listening or watching right now, like especially in the e-commerce space that, and especially looking for new products to sell, what advice would you give to founders that are looking to create a new line of product or looking for a trending product? What's what's your take or insight? Like how how would you go about it if you had didn't have the infrastructure you have now, the access to data that you guys have now? What would you do? Well, first of all, I mean, just to answer the first part of that question to break it down, if you're running an e-commerce company, it's really important that first of all you pick the right category of goods for e-commerce because there are lots of examples of e-commerce companies that have grown in scale, but they always lose lots of money. For example, koala mattresses. Your cost of customer acquisition is so high and you're only selling them a mattress maybe once in 10 years or 20 years, and then you have to try and sell them add-ons. It's very difficult to to build a profitable e-commerce business in certain categories. The category has to make sense. Maybe it's you're building brand online, but it has to have a high margin, low freight. Once you acquire a customer, they'll keep coming back. So for example, shoes make a lot of sense as an e-commerce business because you can really build the brand and the brand image in and in, in, in the ecosystem online and control that. Also, it's a high margin, low freight category. And once you win a customer, they might keep coming back and buying you know, shoes from you for a long period of time. 
sunglasses are another good one. So there's certain categories that make sense for e-com, certain categories that don't. I would argue most companies that are in FMCG and start an FMCG consumer really, really struggle. They all lose a lot of money, whether it's you know Harry's or Glossier, they all end up going into retail at scale because they can't build a profitable business direct to consumer. When you've got Walmart shifting billions of products every single day, and you're trying to acquire a single customer for a single category, for a single product, take Harry's razors, that scale that you're competing with is almost impossible to beat. And so you see them with Glossier that are now going into Sephora or you see Harry's, they went into Target or Walmart and now they've you know, got scale at retail. So really um, when you've got, you know, you've got to be really specific about the category first and make sure it makes sense if you're just running an e-commerce business. And uh, if you're in a category like FMCG, then you've got to be very you know, smart around making sure you use scale of retail um, uh, in order to build a profitable business. So that's probably a lot of the mistakes I see. Um, people go into the wrong categories for direct products and they lose a lot of money. And that's, uh, I see that almost every day. Mm. And I'd love to talk about your journey around, you talk about scale, you talk about even the ability to scale the cash flow. Like you guys have only ever borrowed that $20,000 from your parents and now you've built a multi-billion dollar a year annual revenue company. Um, that's highly unusual. Can you talk us through how that is possible, even from a cash flow perspective or even a scale perspective? Because all those companies, you know, Koala, Harry's, like all these companies, they've all raised outside funding and venture to help with cash flow, to help with uh, scale customer acquisition. So can you talk us through how is that possible, what you've done? Yeah, even Harry's, if you look at Harry's, I think they've raised, what, $600 million? Maybe more could be wrong there, but it's an awful lot of money because they were all D2C and their cost of customer acquisition was so high. And to be honest, I don't know how they spend all that money. I have no idea where it all goes is my honest question to that. Like, you know, this whole like raising capital and raising series A, B, C, D, F, Z, to me is like a little bit archaic. I look at businesses like Oatly and all the hype around Oatly and, and, and the market cap on Oatly. For every dollar that Oatly ships, it loses $1.42. It works on 15% gross margins. To me, FMCG is different to, you know, these tech multiples and it just puzzles me, you know, how these companies operate like this and, and how they're valued so highly. Obviously that a lot of them have recorrected through this period um, or this last sort of six months. Um, but to answer your question, we, we started and we lived literally off nothing for seven years. So even when we were making tens of millions of dollars a year, we still lived on like, like literally dollars a week. And our business structure is set up very differently. So we use the sale big retail, Walmart, Target, Tesco, Carrefour, and we only ship in toys. To this day, we still ship FOB. So in the early days, we had our retailers paying 30% deposits to us, and then they would pick up the goods from us directly at factory or at port, and then they would pay the balance. And so it meant that our retailers were effectively like funding a lot of the goods. We were very low risk. And still to this day in our toy business, we actually don't ship and hold and pay for our own domestic inventory. We run a very lean inventory model. And actually in the whole toy market, this was very disruptive. All our competitors still ship uh, domestically um, all around the world. And they put it into their own DCs in country and distribute to retailers from there. We don't do that um, still to this day. 
And so we were able to, in the early days, get our first big deal where we ended up making sort of a million dollars was on this David Beckham product with Walmart. We came out, we made a million dollars. We really looked after that million dollars and that helped us fund to the next level and the next level. Keep funding you know, our production. And so it's that same as compounding improvement. It's amazing how fast compounding goes. Amazing. If you take like, I think it's like 32 numbers and you compound them, you know, suddenly you've got a huge, huge, huge number. And so it's the same thing here. We really, even when we were making lots of money, we still lived off nothing. We still spent nothing. And we still had this cognitive approach of how do we build our business in a, in, to make profit. So even when we had toys that weren't really selling through at retail and we were bad at making toys, we would still hustle to sell enough of them to enough countries, to enough big retailers that would pay deposits and ship them FOB that would still make profit. And then we'd do another product and do the same thing. So eventually when we got good at making product and we were getting reorders, um, and we were becoming more successful, we were just becoming more and more and more profitable, um, essentially. And that compounding effect has allowed us to, to grow. Um, even if you take, say, our diaper business, um, you know, we started that with, with basically nothing three years ago. That business, you know, this year, it will do, you know, over $200 million um, from a standing start three years ago. And literally to build that brand was less than a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, of course, we took money from Zuru to help fund um, production runs um, and to like to fund the order growth. Um, but outside of that, it's, it's very lean. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. You talked about in the early days, the terms, you have favorable terms where effectively retailers are funding the production and that allows you guys to be cash flow positive and not have go in the red and then get into cash flow problems. How did, and you said it was quite disruptive, how did you switch the retailers to agree to those kinds of terms? Because within that, you know, Oftentimes, retailers are absolute savages and they have a 60, 90 day term period after they've got the goods. <laughs> and they're, you know, so, so can you talk me through how you guys were able to flip that? Because I think there's something very powerful for, for our audience. I didn't think we always like, we didn't always like flip it, to be fair. Like we did with all our distributors. Sometimes we had to hustle with our distributors because we also had some distributors in those early days and we would always make them pay a deposit and always make them pay. Um, uh, as soon as we ship the goods, because we had to, we had no real choice. But with retail partners uh, as well, and they weren't all on those terms, but we would often negotiate terms. But I think the main thing was, is just the shipping FOB, the fact that our retailers took ownership of the goods from us at port in China. Whereas most people buy the inventory, put it in the warehouse, ship to the retailers, they have ownership of that inventory. We didn't have any of the ownership of, 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 of inventory. So 
you know, that really, really helped us. And then we've kept that model to this day, which, you know, as a top 10 toy company, literally none of our competitors have that model. And so it's really allowed us to continue to run the lean operation. I take, for example, our UK operation. We have about, on the toy side of the business in the UK, about five people. We do about two and a half times less turnover than Mattel. Mattel is number one in the market in the UK. But they have over 200 people, I believe, in that UK office. And we have five, but we're only doing sort of two and a half times less revenue. So we're able to run a relatively lean operation in, in comparison to a, to a lot of our competitors because of our uh, effectively our model. Mm. So there's no doubt like insane growth. Um, you guys are one of the largest toy companies in the world. What have been some unexpected challenges that you could share along the journey that, you know, has, has helped you guys reach enormous heights? Yeah, I mean, in terms of challenges, I think we just had every challenge along the way. You know, I touched on some of them earlier, right? Like, you know, we had challenges in those early days. You know, on those first two products, we got sued by one of them and we had no money. Literally, we had no money to defend ourselves in a lawsuit. So I was, it was a Boulder, Colorado company and I was going to Colorado, going around all these law firms saying, hey, how do we defend ourselves? And every sort of lawyer and firm was saying, well, it'll probably cost you a minimum of a million dollars to defend this. And so you work out how to scrap and hustle and find a right way around it. And I and I remember I found this lawyer. His name was Chad. Forget his last name, but I you know I kind of pitched Chad and sold him on the fact that we we're going to win this case and that you know he could help us and share in it and and I'd do most of the work and we just had to you know have him sort of look over it and put his name to it and we found a way to do it really really cheaply and that was the mindset always. We didn't when you don't have a choice, you've got to find a way uh, effectively. And so we just had like problem after problem after problem, like um, you know going through and you know what still to this day one of the things that you have to accept about being an entrepreneur is you're always going to have problems you're always going to have fires it's how you solve those problems and i'd say early on i used to get really stressed about them and today they're almost like a given right so it's like hey calmly how do we like work through this to to to, to solve this issue mm. and i'm curious as well uh have you ever you know you have this relentless mindset obviously your brother's the same um, have you ever thought or, or about giving up? Were there times where it was so tough, Nick, where you thought this is too hard, like I can't do this? Has that ever happened? You know what, honestly, there were so many hard times in China, but it never seemed like an option. There was nothing in me that was like going to give up. And I had, we had all sorts of experiences in those early days in China. I had some, some pretty dicey experiences. I was 18 in China and my mum was desperate to get me home in fact the person one of the people i first went over there with like you know lasted about three or four months and and went home it was tough we, you know I, we were going a little bit crazy like we, me and matt were like literally the only westerners in the place we were in so we didn't see any other sort of people that spoke our native language you know um for for like two years um and so we were going a little bit crazy so there were you know lots of tough times i remember my brother once would move departments at the stage and we we were in this apartment we were on probably the 20th floor i think we were going a little crazy and i had a desk kind of near the door into the apartment that i was working on and i called out to my brother and I, I, there was no answer so i looked around the apartment i was like he hasn't come out the door past me so i'm looking around the apartment for him nowhere 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 he's climbed out the window to the floor one floor down and he's just lying on the windowsill you know 20 20 stories up reading his book so he's climbed down 
one floor and lying on the neighbor's windowsill just reading his book so i think we were starting to go a little bit um a little bit crazy at that point but like that's kind of like an illustration i guess of you know we were just we were just like I don't know, at that point scrapping and kind of like trying to keep our head above water i guess mm. and um i'm curious as well a lot of people when they were 18 they're not going to china to try and launch businesses did you you know most people when they're 18 they're going to nightclubs they're studying they're partying like yeah what what was the what was the take there like talk me through that i mean i still like had probably not in those early years didn't have so much my share of fun but again we just didn't have any money so i'd still like go and do things i remember i was you know i'd eventually was spending a lot of time in, in hong kong and i was living in my little showroom my showroom was probably three meters long and I had a table in my showroom and I had some old shelves that I've found from another old showroom and I used to live under the table. So I'd unwind my mattress under the table. Was the only, that was the only spot that had enough room to sort of lie down and sleep and I'd, I'd live in my showrooms. We literally, like we were living still off like no money. I'd wash them in the public bathrooms. And I remember going out um, to a bar with some of the rugby guys. I was sort of playing a little bit of rugby in Hong Kong. And, 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 and I had this budget to live on per month. And I believe it was 800 Hong Kong dollars a month, which is about, you know, 120, 130 US dollars. And I'd made the mistake of sort of going to a bar with the rugby guys and they'd like put the round on me. And it was literally half my monthly budget at a Hong Kong bar. It was like 400 Hong Kong dollars. So I had to spend like literally half my budget on, on this one round of beers um, and but that's how like we just had nothing, right? And we I remember like being broken for 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 the next few weeks, thinking I'd spent most of my budget um, on this one round of beers. So I don't know. That kind of gives you an example. So those first few years, yeah, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of partying or going out or, or doing the things that most teen year olds do. It was we just worked twenty four seven seven days a week. Yeah, wow. Um, love to talk about leadership. We've got a team of you know five thousand worldwide. How, how do you even stay on top of that number and what's your approach to, to leadership and has it changed as you've scaled? Big time. So our, our core team kind of outside of factories, most of our factories are automated, but some of them aren't, but our core team is about 1,500 um, globally, um, you know, across our, across our offices. And I guess yeah, my, my, my approach to leadership has definitely changed over that time. I would say I've learned a lot and I'm still definitely learning because I'm more of an entrepreneur, I'm not necessarily great at the process and, and, and the structural side of stuff. But what I would say at a, at a top line and part of our DNA is, you know, leadership is super, super important. Like having that big vision and like really motivating people and trying to, you know, I always see that, you know, a big part of what I do is, is focusing on talent and what we call talent density. So really getting the best people on the bus and putting them in the, right, in the right seats of the bus and driving in the right direction. There's another Jim Collins one for you. But that part is really, really, really important. I also strongly believe in, in, in meritocracy. I think it's very hard to manage a lot of people if they're not hungry to succeed and they're not aligned, that their individual success is not aligned with the company's success. And within any company, there's a certain amount of people, I'd say 10% of people that really, really, really truly shift the needle. So aligning those people's interests to the company's interests and making them really strong leaders that filters down and filters down to, to growing more teams. So we actually say that in every position now in our company, we want to, you know, hyper-specialize people. So only the best can become generalists. So if you're not the best, you're hyper-specialized in the area. 
and and we also believe in experts leading experts so we don't believe in managers or management the best should always be on the tools and leading the team they know how to build, they know how to pick the best talent in that area because they're the best at what they do and that's really served us well so we really have like a very flat structure we're completely unbureaucratic as a company we want to move fast we want to action insights really quickly we want to have a fast fail kind of approach to what we do we want our leaders to be you know on the dance floor not on the balcony we always believe they should be in the weeds um, at all times because that's where you get the most insights um, no one is above anyone else. You want to be, you know, getting your hands dirty um, all the time as well. And so I think this sort of DNA for us has developed um, over time. And we want our leaders, leaders to sort of demonstrate, I guess, all of these, these qualities. And, and I guess our leaders as well, their job is to set really strong frameworks for people to work within and then really push that relentless pursuit of improvement and marginal gains. I think you know setting those being, being, being really making sure they um, drive the cadence of our brains trust meetings and drive improvement is a big part of, of sort of leadership um, within within our company. And I think you know part of my role and, and part of how that sort of changed as a leader within our business as you get bigger and bigger, what ends up happening naturally is that you become more and more complex as a as a business. It just naturally gets more complex. So my job is to make sure that we simplify our business, that we streamline our business, that we're rationalizing what we're doing and we're keeping everyone on the same page within those sort of strong frameworks that we set and within the vision that we set. And so that's often really hard because complexity is actually quite easy to do, but simplicity is often quite difficult. So my job is, is challenging the team, say we're going into a new category and they want to develop seven SKUs. And I'm like, okay, with seven SKUs, how many more dollars in sales would that give us than four SKUs? And they might say, maybe 20% more revenue. And I'll say, well, what about all the R&D time, engineering time, the tooling time, putting it into production of those three extra SKUs? Could we use that resource somewhere else? Could we get a better return on investment, return on time using that resource elsewhere? Will that streamline our sales team to only selling those four SKUs rather than selling you know, one or two SKUs to all different buyers globally, which gives us less economies of scale on the manufacturing side. Does that align our marketing team? So the marketing team are getting behind less SKUs and doing a really good job rather than being fragmented in their marketing and their messaging. And so my job is always like putting those challenges forward to really rationalize the team to make sure we're getting the best return on investment for that resource and the best return on individuals' time. And so I'm always challenging everyone within our team. I'm saying like, make waves, not splashes. If it doesn't shift the needle, don't do it. And so my job is like really sort of driving that um, as well. And I would also say one of the big things I've learned about leadership is when you're an entrepreneur, you're always doing, you're always on the tools, always on the tools. And I'm still always tools. The reason I'm here in Minneapolis right now is because it's where I learn the most. Um, you know, I'm always with retail. I'm always asking questions. But one of the big things that, you know, that, that as a leader is I think this question, and, and this was something that was, you know, actually I learned relatively recently. And this question of asking everyone, whether it's a customer, whether it's people in your team, you know, whether it's other stakeholders, what does success look like for you? What does success look like? And it's a really powerful question. What does success look like? And then how do I support you to create that success? And I think that was, you know, as a leader, that's a, that's a question now I use all the time in lots of situations. What does success look like for you? Um, what does success look like tomorrow? What does it look like in a year? What does it look like in five years? And in 2018, you created, uh, you expanded to Zuru Edge. Can you tell us 
what the thinking was there and how did you know it was the right time to branch out? Mm. I think it was this. The toy market is, it's a big market, but it's very, very fragmented. If you walk down a toy aisle, you'll see every peg is a different skew. And that skew is literally 60% of the whole entire toy aisle changes every year. And so toys sets you up. You almost have this healthy paranoia in the toy market because trends move so quickly. You work in every manufacturing form, whether it's roto molding, injection molding, electronics, plush, sewing. You're working at scale, at pace, and recreating so much of your product line every year which almost sets you up to go into other categories really, really well because you're so paranoid all the time to stay ahead of trends and everything that you almost set these systems to become really great at scaling in different areas really, really, really quickly. But the problem with the toy business is, you know, we can grow to a couple of billion revenue in toys annually, but after that, it gets really difficult to keep growing just because of the size of the market and how much share we have to take. Like Barbie, for example, and so I started to have this thesis that we're really good at building, you know, factories and automation and being super efficient on the back end and, and being disruptive. Um, and so that's a core competency within our business. But I look at some of these other categories and I look at diapers and it hasn't really changed in 20 years. And, you know, Pampers has, you know, 30 meters of the same skew that doesn't change year to year. And I'm like, how commoditizes this category? But also I started to create this thesis that, you know, there's a change in a, in a sort of a modern consumer or new age consumer and Gen Z and millennial in terms of what they're demanding from brands. So there's, you know, pillars within brands that they're really demanding now and they don't necessarily want to buy the same brands as their parents did. So they're demanding sustainability pillars, transparency pillars. They're just demanding new things. You know, they have less trust maybe in traditional brands. So you've got the rise of this new age consumer, but you've also got the rise of, you know, AI and machine learning behind ad targeting. So you've got digital advertising, which is highly optimized and you can really target a specific message and learn through data what specific message resonates with that specific audience. So you've got the rise of a new consumer. You've got suddenly a really efficient way to effectively reach that consumer. And then also in a lot of these consumer goods categories, you've got a lot of monopolies and, and, and duopolies. And like Elon Musk says, when you've got a monopoly, you get pretty lazy. Um, when you've got a duopoly, you're lazy. When you've got a monopoly, you get really lazy. And a lot of them have a lot of entrenched capital around the world and they're sweating that capital really hard. And oftentimes, sort of like Tesla, you come in with a whole new approach and build all your factories fresh and you know, use all the latest technology that's evolved around the world. You can actually come into a category and be relatively disruptive. So I guess that was my theory. And these categories that we've gone to are much bigger than the toy market. Can we bring that same level of being on trend, that same level of disruptiveness from a, from a factory and manufacturing standpoint, and that same level of disruptiveness through digital and leading on new platform like TikTok to, um, you know, bigger consumer goods categories. So that started us out, which I started with, you know, Rascal and Friends Diapers in New Zealand was the test thesis. We took 32%, I think we're up to 36% market share in our biggest supermarket group down there within one year. Second biggest brand in the market, Treasures, went out of business after that year. Um, maybe not a great story, but it just showed the power of, of, of our model. Um, we went on to launch in Australia. We won Coles Non-Food Supplier of the Year Award within our first year of launching there. Again, the category director there, Carly, said, you know, um, it was incredible in, our, in the award that we're taking a staggering market share in a short amount of time. Um, Kimberly Clark on Huggies, they started issuing surveys to mums across both markets, sort of working out why we were taking this market share. And, and within well, under two years, we were... Um, according to Nelson Data, already second in, in, in nappies in, in Australasia. We went on and we created that same success in Walmart Canada, taking over a 20 share, 
we've recently signed, you know, Coco Mellon and, and Rascals for our Walmart US launch and, and sort of launched it all around the world, countries and, and all the biggest retailers. So that was, that was sort of the thesis proved at that point. We were like, wow. And on the back of that, we built, you know, a 60,000 square meter factory in under 10 months, which is all state of the art. And, and I, and I guess, you know, that sort of proved our thesis that we could go into these categories that, you know, if you look at the baby category, you know, Pampers, which is Procter & Gamble and Kimberly Clark, which is Huggies, have, have dominated it for decades and that we could actually go into these categories with these big, big players and actually be disruptive. And, and that set us on the journey. And, and now we're building out, you know, our personal care, hair care um, category. Of course, Monday hair care been a huge success globally. Um, number one hair care brand in the world on TikTok. Um, it's been disruptive every market it's launched in. It was in the UK last week. It was just launched in Asda, already launched in Tesco and Boots. And Asda said it was already outselling Pantene, which is the market leader, did the same in Australia. And so we can we can really be disruptive in some of the, 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 these categories. And so, yeah, we're sort of focusing on five core verticals, household cleaning, health and wellness, personal and beauty, uh, personal and beauty um, baby care, and of course, uh, pet food and, and pet care. Um, so it's been a it's been a very fast journey. I think forty two months or something um, since we started it, and 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 it's um, absolutely the fastest growing sort of FMCG consumer goods sort of company in the world now. Yeah, wow! With no outside capital, it's really impressive. Um, so we're going to move to the hot seat round, rapid fire questions. Uh, the first question I'll ask is if you could go back to your first day in business and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? One piece of advice. I would say that as an entrepreneur, one of the things that's super stressful in those early days is just all the problems. You wake up every day with a sense of paranoia about what am I going to open on my email today or on my message today that's going to be another problem. And you almost wake up in the sense of stress because you know they're going to hit you. And so what I would say today is that as an entrepreneur, you problems are an absolute given. And so if you know that they're a given and they're going to come at you every day and every week, then you got to learn how to not be as stressed out about them. And so today, whenever I have a problem, it's just like, I'm like calm about it. I'm like, okay, that's okay. That's expected. Okay, let's deal with it. And so I think just knowing that that you're going to be hit with lots of problems and it doesn't need to be the end of the world and you don't need to get overly stressed about it because it's really just normal. What's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? The worst piece of advice probably was, why are you getting outside of toys? <laughs> um, uh, don't get outside of toys. You guys are so good at it. Just like stay like focused on that. And I just, I just, you know, I, I had, I had lunch with the ex CEO, who's CEO of Alibaba for a short period of time. I think Alibaba by market cap would be the what, sixth largest company in the world. And I said to him, "What was, you know, if you were to say to me, what was the secret to Alibaba's success?" And you know, he said he came back straight away. And said, fast fail. We're always fast failing. And Alibaba could quite easily just been a small B two B business, right? But they were always fast failing in lots of different categories to work out and get insights as to as to effectively where they could win. And I would say Amazon does the same. And 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 that someone, you know, it was actually, you know, our CFO was like, you know, what are you what are you thinking going into these other categories? And and if we hadn't a fast fail and actually taken that step, we wouldn't have realized that we could win in them um, at all. So I mean, that was probably not a great piece of advice. I think my job as an entrepreneur, right, is to is to push boundaries and try and work out where we can win. Um, that's effectively what I'm good at. So why would I not try and do that in, in other areas? What's the best piece of advice you've been given? The best piece of advice, I would actually go back to that asking people what does success look like because I'm, I'm probably taking that step back and using that question 
as much as you possibly can and as many possible scenarios as you can. It's actually a bit of advice I got recently from a very successful uh, guy. And he sort of always framed every conversation with, up, with, with, with that, like, you know, what does success look like if we're going into this category? What does success look like? All the way through, I think that bit of advice is, is just really, really, really good. Um, or at least it's something that I've really taken on board and it's a bit of advice I got recently. If I go further back, I think the best piece of advice is just keep going. Just if you get knocked down eight times, get up nine. Like just be relentless and, and, and just keep getting back up. What was the one toy that you wanted growing up that you never got? Do you know what? We I grew up in, in not exactly a wealthy household and we didn't really get many toys. I mainly got sports stuff when I was as a kid because I probably wanted sports stuff above a toy, but I always actually wanted a Nerf blaster and I never got it. I remember getting this like kind of thing that was a Nerf blaster and being really supportive on my birthday. Um, but never got one of those. And, you know, today we're obviously head to head with Hasbro and Nerf um, at each other's throats almost every day. So a little bit ironic <laughs> what's something you've learned today that minneapolis is quite nice in summer i'm always here in winter and it's like negative 25 degrees and it's actually summer it's beautiful outside i don't know how hot it is but i've never been here when it's actually nice weather i always thought why would anyone live here because it's painfully cold um, for a big proportion of the year i don't know that's a good learning but i've definitely learned that today if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur dead or alive who would it be and why I think Elon Musk, because everything he touches is transforming the world. His vision across SpaceX, Solar City, Starlink, Tesla. I mean, literally everything is transformational. And his approach to talent, his approach to like solving the world's biggest problems, his approach to doing something good in every one of those areas for mankind is just his approach to almost everything is, is transformational. So, you know, I think we take a lot of learnings from him in terms of what we're doing in Zuru Tech and, and trying to change the way the world builds. And I think, yeah, I think there's no one, there's no greater entrepreneur maybe in history than the Elon Musk. Incredible. Well, Nick, that's a wrap. Thank you so much. Uh, that was an incredible interview. Congratulations on all of your success. And uh, thank you for just sharing so much incredible experiences, lessons learned with our community and uh, look forward to continuing to watch your journey. Yeah, thanks. Hopefully, um, hopefully there were you know, lots of good lessons and a few, few good stories as well. So I think the main thing is, is being able to get you know, actionable, hopefully actionable insights, right, from even listening to, to something like this for, 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 for people out there. Yeah, no, this was gold. Thank you so much, man. That was awesome. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.